over. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that phrase actually means? It ain't over until it's over. Let me give you a definition. This is very important, and you'll see how it all fits in as we go along. It ain't over until it's over means the final outcome cannot be assumed or determined until a given situation or event, etc., is completely finished. Does that make sense? It ain't over until it's over. Now, did you know that that is act, there was actually a famous song? It ain't over. To, did you know there's a famous song after that? Do you know who sang it? Hmm? No. I just want you to know that it was Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz. However, what I am going to ask you to do is a couple of moments in this sermon where you're going to sing it. Or you're going to say it at least. So just, just, just do it once. It ain't over until it's over. It ain't over. All right. Let's see how we go with it. Well, the, uh, the, <laughs> the author of Ruth is a brilliant storyteller. He or she has kept us on something of a suspense cliffhanger the whole book because by the end of chapter 3, we are still waiting to see if the unseen hand of God is going to bring Ruth and Boaz together. In chapter 1, verse 1, when the family of Elimelech foolishly move to Moab, no one would have ever have written the script the way we've got it in Ruth. If ever Romans 8.28 is made alive, it's made alive in this book. Take a look at Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In famine, in foolish decisions, in death, in foolish marriages, in sin, in poverty, in widowhood, in singleness, God's goodness comes through the pages as he renews Naomi's hope, as he saves an unknown Moabite woman named Ruth and is starting to bring the lives of Ruth and Boaz together in an incredible way. And right at the start, I want you to know this, child of God, to those of you who have faith in our Lord Jesus, as a child of God, God is weaving your life into the life of Christ. And He's bringing about goodness in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your suffering. And one day, one day the lavishness of God's goodness and grace is going to be poured out upon us in ways that we can only but imagine. But as Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz wait, as they've made godly, wise decisions, they've all had to wait in different ways, haven't they? Ruth starts to work in Boaz's field, and she has to wait. Acting on Naomi's wisdom, Ruth then goes and asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer by, by asking him to marry her, and, and she has to wait. Boaz is willing to marry her, but now he has to wait. And this is critical. 
being godly as we wait on the Lord to reveal His hand is important. As we wait on the Lord, we have to be godly as we wait. As we wait for the Lord to reveal what He has in store for us, we are to be obedient to what we know. We keep praying. We keep seeking. We keep seeking wise counsel. We keep being obedient while we wait on the Lord. Because here's the question that comes up. Despite everything that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz had done, by the end of chapter 3, did they know the Lord's will? Did they absolutely know the Lord's will at the end of chapter 3? What do you think? Did they know? Did they know that Boaz was going to redeem Ruth? Yes or no? No. We hope so. We think so, but we don't know so, do we? I want you to ask this question. How do you know the Lord's will when you're waiting on the Lord for something? How do you know the Lord's will? Or put differently, how do you know what it's going to be while you're waiting for it in that moment? How do you know? Or when do you know? Maybe it's a better question. You know when it? When it happens. We will ultimately know that it is God's will that Boaz marries Ruth when Boaz marries Ruth. In January 2013, Belinda and I, that's about, Ten and a half years ago now, Belinda and I sensed that the Lord was moving us to Australia. We sensed this move through a number of unseen God hand movements. As we saw God move, we, we, we did everything we could to put things into place, and then we waited. We came to Australia for a visit. We came to see you, Lord. We, we like what we saw, and you hopefully like what you saw. We went back to South Africa, and we waited. The church voted, and we waited. We then put our paperwork into the authorities, and we waited. But we did not know for sure that it was God's will for us to come to Australia at that time until when? Until that email came at 4 o'clock in the morning from the authorities to say that you've got a visa. We thought he was moving that way. We, we hoped he was move, moving that way. But if that email had come through and said visa declined, then it would have been God's will that we didn't come. Even though all the circumstances were moving towards that moment, or we thought they were, it ain't, it ain't God's will until it's God's will. And here's the thing. When you look at your life, you have to be very, very careful about looking at circumstantial signs to think that that is where God's will is going because it ain't, it ain't God's will until it's God's will. Let me take you back another 23 years. It's the year 2000. Belinda and I have just got married, 8th of January, and we were sent to our first church in a little place called Bloemfontein. It was an initial two-year period. 
at the end of that two-year period, the church voted for me as a, an apprentice pastor to stay on. The church membership voted 98% to keep me on. My senior minister at, the, at that time, he phoned the bishop and, and asked the bishop to come down from Johannesburg to Bloemfontein and meet with the church. And we were absolutely sure that the deal was done. It was signed. It was sealed. We were staying in Bloemfontein. It was a 98%. Surely that's the way it's going to be. I never forget the night the bishop came, got in his car. He drove down. He walked in. He said hello to the congregation. And then he said this. He said, thanks for giving me a call. He said, 98% vote. Very impressive. Paul is moving 700 kilometers to another church to a place called Durban. And he got in his car and he left. It ain't until it's, it ain't God's will until it's. Have you had the experience of going for that job interview? You go to that job interview and it purrs like a putty tat. I mean, maybe you purr like a putty tat. I mean, everything goes so well. I mean, you sparkle like a jewel in the Nile. I mean, after you come out of there, you think it's in the bag. You're just hanging for that phone call. You're just waiting for that email. You've got the job. And then, lo and behold, that email doesn't come. That phone call doesn't come. Or when it comes, it says, sorry, you were unsuccessful. It ain't until it's, it ain't God's will until it's. God's will. So, so is it God's will that Boaz redeems Ruth? Mm. We'll have a look at chapter 3, verse 18. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And into chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there. First heading. The conference of redemption. Got your Bible open, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He goes to the town gate. Now the town gate, the, the town gate was like the it was like the conference center, the courthouse, and the community hall all wrapped up into one. That's where you you, you settled life matters, that's where you sold property, that's where you sorted out disputes, but you did it without all the red tape and the litigation that we have today. Have you noticed, have you just on, on a serious note, have you noticed that the the, the cost today for some people to get legal justice is absolutely scandalous, isn't it? And my goodness, our society is drowning in paperwork. Everything must be noted, everything written down, everything documented, everything signed, initialed, verified 55 times over. I, I tell you what, so just have a look at verse 7. I, I love the way they did things here. Look at this. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his, brought you a sandal, took off his sandal and, and gave it to the other. This was the method of, we'll come back to that sandal. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Have you just noticed the way we have to transfer property today? What happens? What do you have to do? I mean, you sell a property and then what? You've got to wait six to eight weeks. Hey, Jason, how long is it? Six to eight weeks. And then we've got to pay people to actually... Oh, what the heck? In those times, actually back to my sandal, in those times, 
Um, if you transfer the property, you signed and sealed the deal with a sandal. Sale by sandal, Jason. How's that one go? You can have my sandal afterwards. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. I mean, chance, chance, right? Chance, chance. Just so happened. Just chance, chance that the first in line redeemer just happened to go along as Boaz sits at the city gate. I mean, what's the chances? What's the chances? Absolutely none. So Boaz, in this conference, he makes sure that there are mega witnesses. He's got the 10 elders there. And, and we're not told the name of the other kinsman redeemer, are we? So I'm just going to call him Mr. Uno, all right? Just Mr. Uno. He'll come up and we'll reference him that way. And he says, Boaz says to Mr. Uno, won't you just come and sit, sit down here and we're going to have a little chat and let's see how the conference goes. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I and the next in line. This is a conference of redemption. Because here's the bottom line. Boaz says to Mr. Uno, it is your right, it is your privilege to redeem Naomi. It is your right, it is your privilege to redeem her, to buy Naomi out of slavery. Verse 3, that's why Naomi is selling her land. She is absolutely destitute. She is poor. She's got nothing. She has to sell her land. And Boaz says to Mr. Uno, it is your right to redeem her. Oh, the suspense is killing us, isn't it? What's, it, what's, it, what's he going to say? And as Mr. Uno answers in verse 4, our hearts begin to sing, don't they? I will redeem it. But it ain't until it's over. It ain't God's will until it's God's will. There's a cost for Mr. Uno to redeem Naomi. It will be the price of the land worked out until the day of Jubilee. Now, there's a whole lot there that we've explored. I don't have time. Hopefully in your connect groups this week you can have a look at some of that. But verse 5, Boaz then plays what he thinks is his trump card. And he reminds Mr. Uno that if he's going to redeem Naomi by buying her land, he's going to have to redeem Ruth, the Moabite, the daughter-in-law. He's going to have to redeem Ruth by marrying her to carry on the family line. That's the way the kinsman redeemer package worked in this case. It was a sort of a, I don't know, it was a, I was going to say a two for one, but it's a two for two. It, it, it's, it's redemption means you got a, you, you got a new land and a, and a new wife. 
Sounds like the Australian men's dream, doesn't it? I mean, we're just biting our nails, aren't we? <laughs> What's that we're not going to do? Is he going to redeem her or not redeem? Ooh, what's he going to do? Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but it ain't until it's over. And incredibly, verse 6, the number one family redeemer bails out of the deal because he says what? He says it might endanger my estate. It might endanger my inheritance, another translation. Again, a lot of things you can explore and hope you look at that in your connect groups, but here's the bottom line. The cost of acquiring the land and caring for a new wife and family was too much. The cost was too much. And here's how it worked. You see, if this man married Ruth, he'd have to look after her. He has to have a son by her. And if he had a son by Ruth, then part of his own land, his own inheritance, would also go to that son, which meant that his inheritance for him family was somewhat diminished. And in verse 6, Mr. Uno becomes runaway groom. I will leave you to decide whether Mr. Uno was prudent or ungodly. But either way, the package deal was too much for him. Here's the punch. The cost of redeeming Naomi and Ruth was too high, and he was unwilling to pay it. And verse 8. Then comes as a beautiful, unseen, chance, chance hand of God. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And we, we know that Boaz is going to take the sandal, don't we? We know, I don't quite know how it all works, but we know this thing was going somewhere because we know that Bobby said he would redeem if the first one wasn't going to do it. And, and, and we know that Bobby has got the means to be able to redeem because we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, there was a man of standing. He was, he was wealthy. And so as Mr. Uno takes off his sandal, what he's doing, he's saying, I am now relinquishing my right to redeem Naomi and Ruth. You do it. Did they swap sandals? I don't know. What did they do? I mean, who cares, right? The deal of redemption is done. Signed and sealed in a sandal, and the conference starts to wrap up. It's over because it's, because it's over. It's God's will because God's will has actually taken place. But you do have to come next, back next week for the wedding, which is in verse 13. So don't miss episode 8. We've got this conference of redemption that takes us, secondly, to the conditions of redemption. I want you to see three things that should already be obvious. If you were going to redeem a family member, there were three conditions. One, 
you had to be a close blood relative. That's number one. Mr. Uno, no-name redeemer, was a close blood relative, right? Number two, you had to be able to redeem. You had to be able to pay the price of redemption in land and marriage. Mr. Uno was able to do that. Number three, you had to be willing to redeem the land and marry the widow if necessary. Mr. Uno was able, but he was not willing because the cost was too high. It endangered his own inheritance. Now, I want to show you something rather important. I want to show you this from Deuteronomy chapter 25. I want to show you what happened if a brother of a dead brother refused to marry his dead brother's wife. You get that drift? Let me tell you what happened. Here's if the, the brother wouldn't marry and, 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 and do the thing he was supposed to do. Listen to this. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the city gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, and spit in his face. And say, this is to be done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. Woo! Now here's the thing. Uh, this whole spitting deal probably didn't take place here in Ruth chapter 4. Because Mr. Uno, no name brand, was not a direct, what? He wasn't. A brother, but I just point that out to you to show you this, this sort of sandal stuff and this sort of redeeming stuff. And what's well, pretty serious, isn't it? I, I take it back, Jason. We're not doing sandal deals anymore because I reckon if we went back to the sandals, there'd be a whole lot of spitting and faces going on in this church, and we we don't want to do that anyway. Okay. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what you're going to see. Hopefully, next slide coming up. Verse 9 and 10. I want you to see from these verses that Boaz meets every condition for the Redeemer. Okay? Then Boaz announces to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Boaz is a blood relative. Boaz has the means. He is able to buy the land and provide for Ruth. Boaz is willing to pay the price and out of love bear the cost of redemption and take Ruth into a marriage relationship with himself. Which takes us thirdly to the Christ of redemption. So Boaz is a close relative. He's able, he's willing to pay the price of redemption for Naomi and Ruth, buy them out of poverty 
and bring Ruth into a marriage relationship with himself. And oh, what a glorious taste, what a glorious picture that is of our Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ meets every condition to redeem us. We're all trapped in the poverty of sin, aren't we? Jesus said in John 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And if we're not redeemed, we will die in our sin. In fact, we're all born into the slavery of sin. In fact, we are dead in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're under the control of Satan. We are dominated by our, our ungodly, natural, fleshy desires. We are spiritually bankrupt. We do not have the means or the power to break the power and the penalty of sin. If we are going to be redeemed out of the slavery of sin, we have to have a flesh and blood redeemer, a close relative who is both able and willing to pay the price of redemption to rescue us. I want to show you that Jesus meets every single condition. Have a look at this in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Do you see it? Jesus Christ is our close flesh and blood redeemer. In order to come and break the power of Satan and the power of death over us. But it goes further, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. But we, had, we haven't got a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, Jesus Christ is able to redeem us because he did not sin. And then take a look at this in 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. Our Redeemer needed to be a sinless, close, flesh and blood relative who was willing at the cost of his life to come and redeem us. And there is no one in heaven or earth except Jesus Christ that meets those conditions. Just take a look at these verses. Just let them, just let them sit over you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. How about the marriage relationship? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and willingly gave himself up for her. Or how about Revelation 1.5? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ meets every condition to redeem us, to redeem you. The Word became flesh, willing in love to become the payment to redeem us from the power and the penalty of sin by His death on the cross and bring us to Himself as a redeemed bride. I really want to just press this home to you like this. 
was the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon that said this. He said, my entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. I just want to add two little words, if I may dare add anything to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In love, Jesus died for me. In love, Jesus died for you. That's your redemption. To understand, Christian, our, our redemption, it's not, a, it's not a system of theology. It's not a system of doctrine. It is very, very important that, that we, 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 we start to get our hearts and minds into let me get, pull up some of these big words. It's very important that we, we dig deep and we, we can somehow understand expiation, justification, propitiation, sanctification, and glorification. But we must never forget that Jesus is a living, a real living flesh and blood, God, man, willing, willingly giving his life for you. We live for a person. We do not live for a system. We live for a person, not for a theology. We live for a person, not for a doctrine. We live for a person, not for a particular denomination. It was William Cowper. Had a very sad end to his life. That you could go and read about. But William Cowper was a brilliant hymn writer, and he wrote these words. He said, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Can I say that again? Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Can we keep it simple but not simplistic? Do you want to just sing something with me? Just go with this one. Jesus loves me for the... Oh, it's so simple. But it's not simplistic, is it? How about this one? I'll, I'll start it. You finish it. Tell me. Tell me. <clears throat> Tell me the old, old. It's simple. Oh, it's, it's simple, isn't it, Anderson? You're going to strum that on a guitar for us one day? Maybe we could get you to do it after the service, man. So let me take you finally. Take you home. Well, not home. Ministry meetings first, right? It was this conference of redemption. The conditions of redemption were set out. Take us to the, to the Christ of redemption who made every single condition. It leaves you just with the celebration of redemption. I guess after all the sandals were given out and thrown around, I don't know. You know, you know that thing in, in America where at the end of a graduation, that everybody celebrates and what do they do? They throw their, what, what goes up? What's that thing called? What's that thing called? Whatever. Woo! In the air, right? I sort of get the picture that everybody just took off their sandals. Just take off our shoes and take it off right now and just throw it in the air. It was like this awesome scene. 
Well, here's how it went down, maybe with or without sandals. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bought, bore to Judah. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack all of that for you. I'll do some of that for you next week. So again, don't miss it. But just, just very briefly, as you, as you look at verse 11 and 12, here's, here's what's happening. In this air of celebration, so, so what the elders and the people do, they, they basically pray. They pray that Ruth will become like, like a mother in Israel. That They connect her to, to Rachel and Leah, who were the, they were the mothers of Israel. They were the mothers of the, of, the, of the 12 tribes. Then they actually pray that Boaz will actually be in the line of Messiah as they connect him to Bethlehem. And we know the, that Messiah was born from Bethlehem. And, and, then, and then they connect Ruth to, to Tamar. They're basically praying that Ruth will become part of the line of Messiah. And we'll see all of that next week, but... Stay with that scene. Just as all the sandals go flying up and everyone's excited. It's a celebration of redemption. That the elders and the people, they, 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 there's a rejoicing at this redemption that has taken place where Boaz has redeemed Naomi and Ruth. And my question to you is how much more should we celebrate our redemption in Christ who has bought for us a redemption beyond anything that Boaz did for Naomi and Ruth. It is so spectacularly bigger, so spectacularly more monumental, so eternally changing. How much more should we breathe the air of celebration in redemption? And the air of celebration in the New Testament can't be missed. Give you a couple of examples. Luke 1 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people in Jesus and redeemed him. Here's an exciting one. And they sang a new song in Revelation before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been. Redeemed from the earth. Who are the 144,000? All of God's people redeemed. It's a symbolic number for all of God's people. And they sing a new song of praise for the redemption that comes through the blood of the Lamb. And then Paul rounds up it like this in 1 Corinthians 30. He says it is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. There is only one Redeemer. And it's a simple question. Is He your Redeemer this morning? Has He redeemed you? Has He bought you with His blood? Has He rescued you from the power of sin and the penalty of sin? Has he drawn you into a marriage relationship with himself 
that one day will be consummated in glory in a way that we can only imagine. And if he's not your redeemer today, that before you leave this place, before you go home today, that Jesus Christ will be your redeemer. And I would love to help you, to take you to Jesus. Talk to me after the service. We need to finish with a song that magnifies and breathes the air of celebration. So gathering team, come on up. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, leave, uh, we'll leave those other little ones for later, but we're going to sing.